Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and joining me today is Viola Baskerville for a discussion on finding female ancestors when few clues exist. Now, this is a topic that has universal appeal. Viola Osborne Baskerville is a Richmond native who has been tracing several lines of her own family history for over 30 years. Brief sketches about three family matriarchs led her on a hunt to find out more about them. Ms. Baskerville is a member of the Afro-American Historical and Genealogical Society Greater Richmond, Virginia chapter, as well as a member of the Salo Richmond chapter. Ms. Baskerville is currently featured as one of the contemporary agents of change in the Virginia Museum of History and Cultures exhibition, Agents of Change, Female Activism in Virginia from Women's Suffrage to Today on exhibit through November 1st. And I certainly hope that you will have an opportunity to visit the Virginia Museum of History and Culture to see this exhibition. So let me give just a warm welcome to Viola Osborne Baskerville to the show. Welcome. Thank you so much, Bernice. It's great being with you. Well, it's great being with you, and I'm going to tell you this is one of those topics, as I said, that has universal appeal, finding female ancestors when few clues exist. So let's talk about this. So what makes finding female ancestors particularly challenging? Well, in my research and the sorts, in my journeys, I've found several reasons why this is challenging. Uh, often there is a name uh, or a lack of surname that is given. Uh, a woman may have a nickname, and we have always addressed that ancestor by that nickname. Uh, they've always been called Patsy, uh, Grandma Patsy, instead of Martha, her proper name, Christian name. Uh, they're often incomplete birth records and often death records that were even testified to by 
relatives that should have known more information just did not know information. Or the name could have been recorded incorrectly, or there are, in many cases, family secrets that are covered up and not really um, given too much information or too or short shrift, I would say. We don't want to talk about those things, so we, we just don't have uh, as much information to begin with. And that's very interesting that you would, you know, mention the nicknames because certainly we might always know grandma as grandma. <laughs> and I remember exactly. going exactly. to a class and saying, what can you tell me about your grandmother? Well, I always called her grandma. Right well, there you have yeah. a problem. Yes. So um, and finding, yeah, finding the and the relative who is um, does have a complete name can often be the start of that search. Yes. So let's start off with where does one start when the information you have is very limited? I would start with those living relatives or descendants who would have been the closest to the ancestor you were looking for. And start to write down as much information as you can, interview them, write down all the details. Sometimes they will put in little things like, you know, they said she was blind or they said she was adopted. Those may be clues that ferret out to information and documentation later on. I would try to pinpoint the specific area, either state or county, in which that ancestor could have lived. I would also try to put any time frame. Also do background on the history and geography of the area and pay very close attention to any family members or collateral family members that she could have been a part of. You know, great-grandma Mandy or great-grandma Ella did not pop out of thin air. She was probably um, likely with a group of people who were neighbors or relatives. So I would try to place grandma in her genealogical, what I call the genealogical village. Okay, the genealogical village, which makes a lot of sense especially if you at least know where she's from, as you said, the gene, place her in the genealogical village and look at the people around her, the collaterals. That's the very good. Anything else? Um, I would go local, and I would be very cognizant of nicknames being shortened for a more formal name as well as being, paying close attention to any males that she may have been associated with. That could have been a son, that could have been a brother. And as you go back before emancipation, that could have been, and in many cases was, the slave owner. Very important to know as much history about the enslaved environment or those names of plantations or those owners 
and those owners' families. Because remember, enslaved individuals, if you're talking about enslaved individuals, um, they were often um, rented out for their labor or leased out to other family members or to surrounding plantations. So really knowing the genealogical scope of the enslaved family members is very important. But suppose this was not an enslaved family. Suppose you are really looking at just any any female. And you already said, you know, we need to look at the background and the area and the collaterals. But sometimes the name, it just seems to be changing. You may see Letitia one day and Letty the next day and something else. So how do you go about figuring out that this is the right person? Person? One of the things I've done is to look at all the possible variations of what a person's name correct mm-hmm. maybe a person who is not enslaved, but the the two rules still apply, I think. If you will understand the variations of the name and understand and look for possibly male associated family members. Mhm. Mhm. So that has been very helpful. The- that has been helpful. Great. Name variation, folks. So what was the most unusual source you've discovered that documented an ancestor? I would have to say a small receipt for a money order. And this small receipt for a money order documented an ancestor's mother's real surname, meaning the surname that was not the surname given in the obituary, but the surname by which she identified herself. And it was in a trunk, in an attic, in a farmhouse. And um, that's, it's that old looking in grandma's trunk in the attic. Literally is where I found the receipt. My grandfather was a meticulous record keeper. And he recorded all of his business receipts from, or kept all of his business receipts from 1905 until when he died in 1975. And I visited the farmhouse, looked in the trunk, went through his records, and saw that he had sent a money order in 1911 to his mother, Letitia Epps. And so that confirms that his mother's real name was Letitia Epps and not the name on the obituary when he died in 1975. Well, that's interesting because does that mean that his mother used her maiden name at the time he sent her the receipt or was she married to someone and else? Exactly, exactly. And the question is because she was married later and married her his stepfather, why didn't she nickname, use the stepfather's name? Right. 
Well, that's mm-hmm. very interesting. So when you found this receipt, was your grandfather still alive so that you could ask questions? No, no and that's, um, he died in 1975. I found the receipt about five years later. Oh, okay. Recently. Wow. Mm-hmm. I recently found the receipt. Well, that tells people to really start look, going back and looking through papers and other sources that you may have kind of overlooked, but you might find a maiden name in some of those documents. So what right. led you and to this also, source again? Well, uh, two things. Uh, just thinking there may be some receipts somewhere because he was a meticulous record keeper. And so where would he have kept his receipts? Well, the only place that we had not checked was in the attic of the farmhouse, and we found a trunk that had that receipt in it. And following to have another document to confirm and cross-check, then I applied to the Social Security Administration for his original Social Security application. And on that application, it confirmed that his mother's name was Letitia Epps because he could read and write, and he recorded that Letitia Epps was his mother's name. I just love those Social Security applications, those of you that are really successful in getting that original, because you're right, that original Social Security application for you held the clue. (laughs) Held the evidence, had the supporting documentation. (laughs) Exactly, and that held the supporting documentation in another case of another female ancestor. If people will remember, Social Security came into play in 1935. So there were individuals who were older in life, maybe 55, 60, still working, applying for the first time to that Social Security number. And if they were that old applying and they wrote down their parents' name and when they were born, um, one of the questions asked is your mother's maiden name. So if somebody is 55, they apply for a Social Security application in 1936, probably born around 1880, that and they can record their mother's maiden name. That gives you a maiden name that you can go back beyond even the 1870s or 1880s. So that's very helpful. And that's a wonderful tip. So those of you that are listening, remember, the Social Security application is certainly an excellent source for you. So are there any specific questions researchers should be asking themselves when trying to locate a female ancestor? Well, I think what they really need to start asking is what type of documentation do I really have now? Who are some uh, reliable family members that I can ask questions of? 
they should also be asking who were the men in that ancestor's life that could have been a brother, that could have been an uncle, that could have been a grandfather. There, there could have been a neighbor that was helpful. There could have been an employer um, that we know about um, that would have kept documents. Um, they should be asking and looking at the descendants and what information can be found on descendants' records. Is there any other, you know, questions? I mean, certainly you want them to think, well, what are all the documents that you should be looking at, uh, as you said, and then what people may have information for you? But let's say we're now in 1880, 1870. What what kinds of questions should they be asking during that period of time when they are searching for a maiden name? Well, one of the places that I I searched and and I really found some some luck was in the um, cohabitation records. Mm-hmm. Um, in Virginia, there were 18, there, the cohabitation records came out in 1866 that were very helpful because often they would ask um, names of children and um, the name that the spouse uh, goes by or the woman goes by. Uh, often that is very helpful to find out information. I would also look at um, estate records. Uh, property records, deed records, um, going going back um, could be very helpful. Right, and I have seen deed records where the female is listed. I mean, my daughter, or uh, you know, they they would say something and give the name of the daughter. So that's the female name right there, and she knows that is the father. So let's talk about youth in particular. What type of documentation provided significant breakthroughs for you, and what did that breakthrough allow you to discover? Well, I'm going to talk about a specific case um, in which I was looking for, let's go with Letitia Epps. I was looking for her ancestors and to connect her ancestors with a specific place, meaning trying to find out was she only in Virginia or did she come from somewhere else. So I think the, that one of the records that helped me with the breakthrough was the 1866 uh, cohabitation records in Virginia that asked specifically the previous owner and where that previous owner was married, uh, uh, was born. And so that sent me to North Carolina records. And so in the North Carolina records, I found information with respect to her grandfather. And so I could then go back to 1812. So that was a significant breakthrough. I also found local records to be extremely helpful. A lot of times we overlook our our local clerk's office. But in those back rooms with those big binders, there were marriage and death records recorded. Sometimes those records are not online. So just searching at the local level was very helpful. 
I also found at the local level a record that's not um, online but was very helpful. I went to the funeral director in the small little rural town. The funeral director had been in business for 80 years and had been servicing both African-American and um, Caucasian families. And I just took um, on a lurch and I said, well, if he's been in business that long, maybe he would have records. And I asked if he had records going back to a certain time frame. And he said, yes, I believe I do. So he went back in his back room and looked in his file cabinet and came forward with six account records. These were account books in longhand. And he said, you're welcome to look through these. And I looked through them and found the date of death of an ancestor that I had been looking for for five years and when she was buried and that her son had come in and put in a $10 deposit for a casket for her. So this was a funeral director that was servicing the area and was providing everything from just purchasing a casket to full service. So that record was not online, even though she died in the 1930s, and Virginia recorded death certificates since 1912. She was not in the Virginia death certificates. I don't know if that was because that was a rural area and they never bothered to record, but I finally found a date of death for an ancestor, um, a second great-grandmother, by going to that unusual, uh, just asking out of the word possibly, a record at the funeral home. I love that. I mean, just to think that this funeral director did have those records and those records were not destroyed was a big plus. Were you doing the happy dance or just <laughs> maintaining doing the happy dance? <laughs> and in fact, I asked the funeral director to please contact the state repository. Do not throw those records away contact the state repository and I gave them the particular the specific information, person's name and number, contact them and have the and donate those old records to the state repository. Did they do it? I'm gonna follow up and find out. <laughs> <laughs> well this is just you know, going local as you said opened the door for you and certainly going to that funeral director in that small rural town that maybe some people don't even think about, but that that's a possibility. Did that funeral director also have like a copy of the obituaries or did you then have to follow up with the, the, the local church? No, this was in 1932. So um, there was not uh, a paper uh, that had recorded that, um, and the family had not apparently put it in um, an obituary in the paper anywhere in that area. I followed up by going to the church, up uh, to the cemetery at which she was buried. Uh, this was 1932. Um, we're in a depression. People don't have a lot of money. Unfortunately, um, she... Another family remember, remember, remembered her being buried there, but there is no grace of her name on it. There are these 
old headstones. Uh, you've seen them. They're rough-hewn, um, and there are several in the cemetery that mark that a person has died, but they are not well uh, inscripted, so you cannot see that uh, a person's name is on it or that that person is buried there. Yes, and that makes it really difficult sometimes when you can't uh, read the information on the uh, tombstone or the marker uh, at the fun- at the cemetery. So let's talk about to date. What's the furthest back in time you have been able to track a female ancestor? Well, I possibly um, we've gone we've we went back through the. Uh, 1870s, 18, and then we went to the back to the 1860s, the uh, federal census, because we had a situation that there was only one person in that area with that last name that have, could have been the in the genealogical village of the ancestor. And by going back and tracing that group of individuals through the 1860s, uh, federal census and the 1860 slave census just by identification of age. Uh, we probably saw in the 1850 census, we tracked them back there because it was a slave owner who only had this one small group of slaves. And we probably can say about eight, about seven, the late 1790s is what we believe if we have correctly identified this group. One of the unfortunate things is that we're working in a county that's burned out. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. trying to find the actual deeds and records is a challenge. And then I'm looking in surrounding counties. So that, that's a search in and of itself. But this particular slave owner did not live in any other county but this one county but there may have been transactions in other counties or recorded um, transactions in other counties. So we're still searching. But we have this eye on this matriarch that's identified as 70-year-old in the the 1790s, and that's who we think this person is. Well, I'm going to put you on the spot, and I'm going to throw out (laughs) – I'm going to give you a scenario – and see what you think of this. The ancestor is identified in 1890 in an 1890 marriage record with the surname Crofton, G-R-A-F-T-O-N. That's number one surname. By 1913, there's a marriage of her son. And her surname is listed as Walkins, W-A-L-K-I-N-S. In 1918, her daughter passed away. And when she is asked, actually on the death certificate, it states, what is your maiden name? This is the mother. She says, Pompey. In 1920, her, another son gets married. What is your mother's maiden name? Crofton. Upon her death in 1941, 
the husband now has to put in the name of the mother's maiden name, Pompey. Amanda Pompey is her mother's name. So which of these surnames would be the correct surname? It's hard to say. You have to start doing your research and go through all of them and try to find (laughs) out collateral people (laughs) that could be in the group. One of the things that helped me was to look at and find the children's name groups together. If I found the children, then I probably had the person, the correct person, children and ages. So look for the children. Right, Suppose exactly. Is, mm-hmm. Or, or again, so collateral relatives. The collateral sectors. Right. Mm-hmm. But this is an interesting scenario of finding a female with so many names. Or for exactly. that matter, finding a great-grandmother with three different last names because she married three different times. And sometimes the documents for her children would include not her maiden name, but the name of the last marriage, which was not her name. So as you said, you have to look at that whole that whole genealogical village, if you will, just to figure out and find the documents to support what you're looking at, because it is really sometimes mind-boggling when you're trying to find that female maiden name. So let's talk about some advice. Advice that you would give to someone trying to find a female ancestor, um, just because it can just become so frustrating. Well, I would first Anybody knows about this ancestor, even the smallest detail. Um, for instance, I have a second, I have a great grandmother that I'm trying to connect uh, and find um, how I'm connected with the DNA ancestry out of Arkansas. <laughs> and um, I remembered one of the things that my mother told me about her grandmother was that she was blind and she was adopted. So that could mean, the adopted piece could mean several things, either that she was uh, given away or that she ended up with another family somehow between Arkansas and Virginia. So I have to do the tracing there. So get all of that information that you can. Place her in the correct geographical location as much as possible. Um, I would go local, especially the local records are particularly helpful. Now, it takes time to go through those local records, but uh, going through those local records often, uh, you know, gold mines. I would not try to do this by myself. I would enlist other family members because you can divide and conquer particular genealogical goals that you set for yourself. And also it's good feedback so you can have discussions on, well, if I were her at this 
time, I would have probably been doing X, Y, Z, and that could give you insight into where she could have been. Uh, I would really know the history of the area. Uh, Were people migrating out of the area at a particular time? Is there a particular major or was there a particular major employer at the time? Were there opportunities for people to um, do other things in the area which would have made them um, sort of on somebody's list, again, either employer or um, what have you? Uh, Make sure you follow the closest male association. Again, that could mean a family member as you go back in time. That could be an employer as you go further back in time, especially with enslaved people. That would have been the the plantation owner. Um, I would um, create timelines for yourself uh, to make sure you are not getting confused and chart out everything. Uh, Remember, don't forget grandma's attic because that is a gold mine in itself. Uh, Check your uh, surrounding county because uh, often people recorded either marriages or births or deaths in places other than uh, where they lived for whatever reason. There could have been an emergency uh, situation, could have been a war. The, The courthouse could have burned down. The political boundaries could have changed. You could be looking in a city and really, at the time that you're looking for the ancestors, they were actually living in a political entity called the surrounding county. So be aware of that. And uh, sometimes you have to regroup and just kind of refresh yourself. Um, it's not going to be done in a, a day or a week or a year or five years or ten years. Sometimes you just have to uh, put that uh, search down and, and sort of go back and, and uh, refresh yourself. And, you know, you just gave some uh, good advice. Sometimes you do just have to take a break. And also go back and look at what you've already done. The information may be right there in your face, but you overlooked it. And as you mature and develop better skills, genealogical research skills and critical analysis, you may find that that document is sitting right in your face. And exactly. Go ahead. That's just something really good for people to think about. You know, right now we we're so excited about being able to go online, go online, go online. And if you don't see it, then you figure, well, they're not there. Not realizing that sometimes you may be looking at them. But they may have been it may have been transcribed incorrectly. There's so many things that you need to think about. But one of the things that you said was give yourself a break, stop for a minute, and then go back. Because you may find it. The other I thought great advice was to develop a timeline. Timelines are extremely helpful. Because they give you a context, and if you can just chart out the timeline of this person's life, you may be able to just find what that surname was. But it takes right. time. Right. And in fact, I would add to, I add to my timelines any significant historical event that may have been happening at the time 
mm-hmm. change of political boundaries. If I know a county was uh, incorporated differently in a certain year, I need to mark that down because if I'm looking for a person in a certain county in a certain year and actually that county was not yet incorporated, I will get frustrated and won't find the records there because guess what? The records are not in that county. They are in the, the county from which it was birthed. So you have to be really cognizant of what's going on geographically and what's going on politically as well as what's going on economically. Was this a time in which it was after a certain um, maybe war and so the area was going in through transition? Was this a time in which ammunitions were going back and forth? Should I be following the railroad? Should I be following the river? What should I be following as far as the next, um, I guess, a city or county in which this person could have been? So I would just right. start asking all of these questions. Right, and you're bringing up something, again, very important. You have to clearly understand and put your ancestors in the historical context of what was going on at that time. Uh, This whole enlisting of the family members. Now, suppose you have the family members. You mentioned very early about these secrets. Yes. How do you get to the point when you have develop the trust with the family members that they're willing to disclose the secret? That's a good question. I I was working with two family members to help give me more information. And so what I asked first was, do you have any photographs of mm-hmm. the ancestors? And um, they brought out photographs, and we we started a conversation. Oh, wasn't that lovely dress? What were they doing? Who were? So we started gradually kind of developing a conversation to engage them and to garner trust. So that's the first thing to garner trust to start giving more information and breaking down those walls um, is difficult, but. Um, I think it can be done is just over time and how to approach that. And sometimes you may have to think, how can I even have a um, inter- intervention sometimes if it gets really <laughs> difficult? <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, you have certainly provided individuals with clues on finding female ancestors when few clues exist. And so I hope that the listeners will have used a paper and pencil to jot down all of the various recommendations you have provided us today. And before we close out, do you have any last parting words you want to share before we say goodbye today? (laughs) Well, I would just say for people to be persistent, Whatever they see written down, don't take it as the gospel truth sometimes because I found an ancestor's uh, maiden name uh, by just looking through other relatives' information. 
and sometimes even um, descendants don't even know the correct information. So don't get frustrated. Just look at everything that's on the horizon. Make sure you double-check and triple-check records. That's always important. And just keep being persistent because that female relative ancestor is out there waiting to be found. And when you find her, she will have been vindicated and her name lifted up in history. So um, just be persistent. Just be persistent. And everyone, I want you to understand, your ancestors did leave footprints, just as Viola was able to find a receipt. On that receipt was a maiden name. Your ancestors are, as she said, they're out there. Somebody has something on them. They want to be found. Right, Viola? Yes. <laughs> they want to be found. So just follow the clues that are presented to you. Think about that genealogical village. Think about those collaterals in your community. And perhaps you will come on the show and tell us about the breakthroughs that you've had and finding your female ancestor. Thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and a special thanks to Viola Osborne Bakersfield. Have a wonderful day, everyone, and I look forward to all of you joining me next week. Bye-bye. Thank you, Viola. Thank you, Bernice.